finish here with a reading from Matthew 6. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This is the word of the Lord. Please say hello to some. Morning, y'all. Thanks, dude. You had the jokes today, didn't you? Yeah. Can't prepare. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Um, I, just real quick before we get started. Um, I don't know if you've been in church a long time, but when it comes to music, there's like church good. You know, like it's like good for church. And then there's like, oh, it was just good. It was good. It was just good. It was good. Good job, guys. You did good. It was better than church good. Yeah, it was... Also, when all, when all of you sing, it also sounds lovely. Um, so if you're a guest, welcome. My name's Chris. I'm the uh, pastor here at Riverstone. Um, we're glad you're here today. As you can see, we're dunking people. So believe it or not, I'm going to keep it short. See, I knew, I knew, I knew. I know. That was great. All right. Uh, we, I'm, look, we got to get going. We got to get going. We're gonna keep it, I'm going to be brief today, okay? Uh, last, last week, I'm, I'm talking over the jokes that you're saying right now. Uh, last week, uh, I induced, I, we introduced the season of Lent and invited you to a season of fasting and prayer for this church, for this community, leading us up to Easter morning. I'm inviting all of you uh, to pray with me uh, that God would move in our midst, that he would save people, that salvation would come to households, that great, the grace of God would be made real to us, more than just an idea out there somewhere, but an abiding reality of our hearts and lives. I'm inviting you to pray with me for revival in our hearts, in this church, in this community, and on and on and on I can go, but that's the invitation. Pray with me leading up to Easter that God would use this place, that he'd use us, me, you. And last week we said that Lent um, calls us to reflect on what it means to be people of the garden living in the wilderness. The wilderness of sin, the wilderness of the world that we find ourselves in, where injustice runs rampant, where violent racism and hatred run rampant, where men get their way um, in this world, where darkness has domain. How do we live as people of light amidst the darkness? People walking towards the kingdom, walking towards the light, when all we see around us is injustice and darkness. And that the biblical narrative says that sin broke the world, y'all. That's the reason the Bible is going to say there's suffering. All suffering is going to say it's a consequence of sin. It's what sin brought, death, uh, injustice, selfishness, suffering. But that God would rather take our death and suffering onto himself than leave us in it. This is the narrative of the Bible. So he sends his son, Jesus, who deals with and, and confronts the consequences of sin in the world, right? But last week we said, despite the fact that Jesus has dealt fully with our sin, he said it's finished. He says, done. He's dealt with our sin, right? We still, as Christians, now if you're a Christian in this room, we still have these little things called habits, don't we? So you have this remarkable encounter with Jesus, supernatural, right? We're in a moment of worship just like this, and you're crying, you're raising your hands, and it's amazing. And Jesus encounters you, and he saves you from your sin. He forgives you. There's a moment of transformation. It's real. It's real. It happens, okay? The problem is you got 20 years, let's say, of habitual selfishness. Is God going to immediately remove that? Does God routinely override your will? Will God make you into a kind of person without your permission? So we have these things called habits. 
And guess what? So many of my habits, so many of your habits are habits of darkness, y'all. Habits of sin, selfishness, habitual muscle memory of anger or lust or unforgiveness. And it's really hard just to flip a switch and change into a whole other kind of person. God will and does heal our hearts and give us new desires. In fact, the Bible talks about God giving you, taking your heart of stone and giving you a heart of flesh, but he will almost never, ever, ever force you to obey. That's your call. He will never, never. Guys, if I force you to love me, is that love? No, that's called oppression. It's called tyranny. God will never force you to love him. He will pour his love on you. He will radically in a moment transform you, but you have to walk it out. I don't think he'll do that for you. So despite the fact that Jesus has fully and freely redeemed you, given you a new heart, sanctified you in a moment, in his sight, clean, you still have a choice every day. You have a choice. You have a choice. This is the biblical narrative. Therefore, the New Testament is slammed full of, guess what? Pleadings. Pleadings to do what? to act a certain way, to live a certain way. Almost every page in the New Testament, almost every verse almost is directing us. Jesus has done this, now you do this. Now live this way, put on the new self. He's redeemed you, he's forgiven you. Now you have to agree with it. He's done it all, now you do this. And I mean, go look at here, right here. The book of Colossians and Ephesians. You guys know those books in the New Testament? Go look at the structure of the book. The first half of the book is what Jesus has done. Go look, I'm not making this stuff up. The second half of the book is now you do this. Jesus has done this, now you respond this way. It's fascinating. Love each other in unity, you know, um, outdo one another in love, put on the new self. It's, 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 a, it's a rhythm in the, in the Bible. But many people, despite that reality, many people have a faith, stay with me, that requires absolutely no repentance, it requires no change of your plans. It requires no putting on of a new self. Like kind of God's done it all, right? And if he's done it all, then, well, there's not really a need for me to change or rethink my life. Well, if that's true, why on earth does Ephesians 4 say things like, put on the new self, put off the old self. He's telling you to do it because you have to do it. God won't do it for you. And in Lent, we said it calls us to get real about the lingering habits of sin in our life. At church of all places, to stop brushing them under the rug, to admit the fact that you have a part to play, that your habits matter, that your lifestyle, that your choices matter. So we gotta jump right in. Like I said, I'm gonna keep it short, right? Gonna gotta get to the point. So the point today is this, this is great. We, um, this is wonderful. The point today is fasting. I says, it says pause for applause in my notes. I didn't, yeah. I'd, I don't know why you wouldn't be excited about not eating, I don't know. Like, and some of you are like, seriously, like a broad friend, dude, we've got to talk about this. Yeah, right. Why on earth? Why on earth would we have to talk about this? Well, let me tell you why. This is what I love about Lent, this season of the church calendar. Um, it forces us to deal with things that we would gladly omit, right? Like, I'm gladly not talk about that. And, it, and lo and behold, it's here in clear sight. In fact, Jesus said his followers would fast. Real quick, let me just prove to you. Uh, if you call yourself a Christian, um, that following Jesus includes this very, very unpopular habit. Jesus said this in Matthew 6, 17, but when you fast, oh, okay. 
Anoint your head with oil, wash your face. Then, uh, and then, uh, oh, he says this. Uh, then the disciples of John came to him, is another saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now, this is what people will point and say, see, Christians don't need to fast. See, because when the disciples were with Jesus, the guys were asking him, hey, why do we fast and, and you don't fast? And Jesus says this, well, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? And people say, yes, see, Jesus is still with us. Whew, dodge that bullet. Don't need to fast, right? But dude, read the next verse. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they'll fast. Dang it. In the New Testament, Acts 13 tells us clearly that the disciples fasted and prayed for direction from God. Now, I know many of you in here consider yourselves Christians, which means, this is what it means to be a Christian, if you don't know, um, that you follow Jesus. That's the idea. It's crazy, I know. Um, which I assume means that you do the things that Jesus did. That's what I assume being a Christian means. Like, I've played follow the leader. And when you play follow the leader, the guy does things, right? Like, and then you, you, everyone does, follow the leader. You guys played that game? No, Gary doesn't play it, yeah. Gary's not into that. What, what, what do you think it means to follow Jesus? Remarkably, Many of us have a definition of what it means to follow Jesus in which we do not follow him at all. We do not do the things he did. We don't pray the way he prayed. We don't do the acts of Jesus. We don't teach the way Jesus taught. We don't think how Jesus thought. We don't love people like Jesus loved people. And it's remarkable to me the amount of people who say they follow Jesus and yet just simply don't. Guess what, y'all? Jesus fasted. So if you call yourself a Christian. If you claim to follow Jesus, how do you do that without doing the things Jesus did? Y'all, unfortunately, I love you. So glad you're here today. Fasting is very much a Christian practice. Despite the clear presence of fasting in the New Testament, isn't this the one we want to ignore? Duh. And here's the, here's the reality. Let's just play real. I know if you're a guest, you're like, is he always this mean? I said, it's not mean. It's not, I'm not being mean. It's like a like bull in a china shop type thing. Um, if you've been a Christian, I can almost guarantee this. this. Despite the clear presence of fasting in Scripture, I can almost guarantee there are people in this room who follow Jesus for years and years and years and have never fasted. Now, listen, I'm not guilting. I'm not shaming. I just want you to consider this. Number one, I want to invite you into following Jesus, which means doing the things he did. And he knew that his followers would routinely do this. And number two, I, want to, I just want to gently slide this question across the table to you. If, you. if you're a Christian for many, many years and have never considered fasting, never done it, never even considered it, is it possible that you have a version of Christianity that's more a reflection of your society and culture than a reflection of the Bible? If you've been a Christian for a long time, and if you've never considered fasting, never done it, is it possible that you have a version of Christianity that is more a reflection of your time and your society and your culture than it is the Bible? That is a very real possibility. In fact, I would take cultural Christianity any day over biblical Christianity. You know what I'm talking about? You know cultural Christianity, when it's all about you and what you want and the good parts that you like, and you just totally ignore the parts of the Bible that you don't like? 
You know, just, just brush it under the rug. It's remarkably convenient. And y'all, the Bible Belt South, guilty of it. Guys like me, completely guilty of, of promoting this self-centered, consumeristic version of Christianity that's all about you, because it feels so good. And you never have to deal with anything we don't like. We just pick the parts we want, and then we push the parts we don't under the rug. And it's much more convenient to have a Christianity like that, but you just have to confess right here. Let's just be real with that. Let's be real with that approach. Um, if that's your approach, if you're gonna pick out things you like and don't like, you have to admit you're, you think you're smarter than God. You think you know what makes you, you think you know how humanity ought to live more than God. Because if you're going to say, if you're going to take his book, you're going to say, there's things I like, things I don't like. I'm going to take out these and I'm going to take these. You, you've become the authority. You are not in submission to, you're the authority. All right. I, okay, let's go. All right. So here's the one question I want to ask today. I got off my notes. It was a bad mistake. Here we go. Why fast? Some of you are like, I don't care the answer to that question because I'm not going to. It's fine, I know. Let's just, in, in, you know, for academic purposes, let's just, let's just explore why other people in the Bible fasted. All right, because I know some of you are like, there's nothing you can say that's going to make me, you know, there's no answer to that question. Okay, why have other people fasted in the Bible? Let's check it out. Uh, what you see in the Bible, pretty clear motivation uh, for fasting, pretty clear patterns. One of the clear motivations that you see in the Bible is a mourning over the state of the world. This is why people fast in the Bible. They look around, they open their eyes to other people, and they see suffering, they see sickness, they see war, they see hatred, they see anger, they see adultery, they see all the suffering of sin in the world, and they say, that's not how it ought to be. They see violence. They see exploitation. They see divorce. They see households burning down, and they say something is, they say humans were not meant to live like that. And they fast as a way to express mourning over the state of the world. Mourn, lamenting over the failure of humanity to figure out how to live in a way that we all flourish. Dude, are you a history person? Look throughout the ages and see if humanity has ever figured out how to not uh, push some people to the margins and make them suffer and exalt some people, very few, to the top. Humanity has a poor history of figuring out how to make all people flourish. And fasting is a way that you look around a universe that you see pain and death and sorrow and you say, humans were not meant to live like this. We were not meant to die, we're meant to live. And it's why, friend, death feels like an injustice every time it knocks on your door. It's why every time you lose someone, we say, something doesn't feel right about death. Like we're not made for this, right? It's why we avoid it. It's why we hide from it. It's why we, uh, millions and millions of dollars of industries help us avoid the idea that we're all going to die one day. Well, the Bible would say, you know, you weren't made to die. You were made to live forever with, with God. It's lamenting sin, y'all. It's lamenting self, what selfishness has done to the world. Check it out, Judges 20. 18,000 men had died in battle. And it says, then all the people of Israel, the whole army went up and came to Bethel and wept. 
They sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. When Nehemiah hears the state of Jerusalem, that it's fallen, that the walls are torn down, it says, and they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem's broken down. The gates are destroyed by fire. And as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. When Saul, and Saul, who in some ways was the enemy, right? And his Jonathan, his son died. They mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. Okay. So for those of us lucky, lucky enough in this room that have never had to face the death of a loved one, this idea is a bit harder for us to relate to. But if you've ever lost someone close to you, you know that fasting is one of the most natural things because you've simply lost your appetite for life. In deep mourning, when sorrow and darkness and the consequences of sin bear its weight on you in a personal way, when death comes close to you, when suffering comes close, you lose your appetite for life. All the joy of life just drips off the pages. And when the suffering of the world comes to our door, intentionally going without food is, is a way that people have responded for centuries. Now, I don't know if this is totally right, but maybe it's this. Maybe it's a way to go through suffering and sorrow without losing all control and dignity. Maybe fasting is a way of possessing yourself, being in possession of it, being in self-control when the world feels out of control. But whether or not you've had to go through that or not, every single one of us can open our eyes to see around us that the world is not as it ought to be. If you, if you think everything's rosy in the world, open your eyes, brother. Open your eyes. And I'm not even talking about get on the news. I'm just talking, go for a drive down the street, right? Just go to a store, talk to someone, talk to your coworkers. You're going to figure out all is not well in the world, right? And, and the Bible is saying fasting is a way to mourn, to lament that things are not as they ought to be. It's, exp it's expressing with more than words a deep dissatisfaction, with the, a deep regret, over the evil and the wickedness and the suffering that we see in the world, right? So on the one hand, because of the great efforts of modern society to insulate and protect ourselves from pain and suffering and death, this type of fasting can seem kind of out, out of our reach. It kind of, it, this can seem like, well, why? I mean, pop another Xanax. Why do I have to mourn anything? Everything's fine, right? But you live a little. And if you take your eyes off yourself on your screen for five seconds, you might see in your very neighborhood, the people that live to your right and left, that, that people's lives are falling apart, that things are not all well, that cancer is here, that addiction is here, that there's an abusive father here, there's a strung out mother here. And what we see in scripture is people fasting to mourn and repent of the collective sin of a society and the ramifications and the consequences of sin in their land, acknowledging it, not whitewashing it like so many Christians, not burying their head in the sand like so many Christians do, but engaging with it, right? So yes, evil is out there and we can all agree on that, but fasting is also an expression of evil in your own heart. Fasting is also an expression of mourning and showing regrets of the fact that there's darkness in you still too, that it's not all just out there. In Joel 2, fasting is clearly associated with personal repentance. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me. 
with all your, it's a form of returning to God. Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping and mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. You know, in the old, the back in the, rending the garments was this idea of repentance. You know, the chief priest does this. Remember when Jesus says the thing, ah, you know, and he's saying, stop doing that. Stop putting on a show. Just rend your heart, the insides, rip that open. Not just your shirt, right? Return to me, return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He relents over, to over disaster. So you see, fasting is a way to acknowledge all is not well. Remember last week we said being a person of the light does not mean you turn, to, turn a blind eye to the darkness, but rather you engage it. Darkness out there and darkness in here. Fasting is a way to acknowledge it. Fasting is a way to say all is not well out there. And I'll tell you what, all's not well in here either, right? It's a way to engage it from, and, and from that place of acknowledging the darkness without and within pleading that God would intervene. This is the story of, this is what fasting is in the Bible. This is uh, another reason we see people fasting, seeking God for help and direction. Seeking God for help and direction. This is over and over in the Bible, you see this. Fasting is a form of request. It's a form of intercession, imploring God, pleading with God. Intervene in the mess, Lord. Like, I'm seeing it out there. I'm seeing it in here. Please do something. Send help. I need direction. I need a miracle, right? Now, listen, let me be real clear about this. Fasting is not a way to secure those things. It's simply expressing the need of those things to God. So you can't fast and be like, see, now, God, you owe me. It's not how it works. You fast to express the darkness on the outside and the inside and regret and repent of it, right? Father, I need you in my marriage, right? From that place of acknowledging the darkness to inviting God into the darkness, this is what fasting is about, okay? So here it is, another one, Ezra. Then I proclaim to fast there at the river of Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and our goods. It's a form of request, y'all. It's a form of petition. Uh, David fasted, pleading that God would save the life of the illegitimate child. Remember that one, Bathsheba? Esther fat called a fast that her life would be spared when she approached the king. In the book of Jonah, interestingly enough, Nineveh, the enemies of Israel, fast and ask God to spare them, and he does. We see here, uh, fasting is a way to humble yourself, to acknowledge that there are things outside of your control, overwhelming forces that we as humans have very little control over. And it's, and it's asking God to intervene in these places. God, intervene when I'm hitting my limitations, right? When I, have, when I can't control the situation, when there's forces outside of me, that there's no way I can manipulate or control. We fast to invite God, to ask God to intervene on our behalf. In the most basic way, in some ways, y'all, fasting is acknowledging your limitations, that you are a mortal who needs food to have energy and strength. But more than that, fasting is saying this, Lord, I need food to have strength, but more than food, more than vitamins, more than physical nourishment, more than all those things, I need you. I need you to intervene. I need you to tame the forces that are outside of my control. Y'all, what good is physical strength if you have no will to live? We fast to plead with God to renew our spirit and help and that he would intervene in the mess, right? And this is where some Christians will say things like this. Well, God, God has intervened. He sent Jesus. Okay, amen. Let's think about that for a second. 
He did. He did intervene in Jesus. Let me ask you a question about that intervention that he, 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 he did in Jesus. What has the work of Jesus done for you in the way that you treat your wife? What has the work of Jesus done for you in the way that you actually live? Like, for example, um, your appetite for sex. What has the work of the cross done to your appetite for sex? What, what has the work of the cross done for your anxieties and your, your insecurities? You know, about the forces in life that feel outside of your control. Like God has completely, fully resolved those things in one sense, right? But has it completely, fully resolved those things in the way that you actually live? In your experience, right? That seems to be the idea that, he, that the, what Jesus did on the cross is supposed to have this crazy impact in your life, in our actual experience. And my question, my question is, has it? What's it done in your marriage? What's it done to, to, to the way you relate to your boss? And are you saying that because Jesus intervened all that time ago that you no longer need him to intervene now? That he did his part and now it's all up to you and you're gonna perfect in the flesh what was begun by the spirit? Is that what you're saying? When you say, well, he did intervene, he came. Oh, so you're, you're just saying all the rest of it's just up to you? Because I can tell you right now, I sure as heck need him every day in my marriage, in the way that I treat my, my kids. I desperately need his intervention. Like today, right now, and how I live. I guess it's just me. He has intervened. Yes and amen. And when he did intervene, you know what he called himself? He called himself the bread of life. You know what that means? Well, at its most basic, it means that you daily have to rely and depend on this. That if you're going to have nourishment, if you're going to have the strength you need, there's a daily coming to this bread so that you have uh, energy and nourishment again and again and again. Dude, he has intervened. And I'll tell you, I have even better news. He still wants to intervene in your, in your life right now. Y'all. Jesus wants to intervene right now in the areas of your life where you are hitting forces that feel outside of your control. And for some of us, it's very oppressive forces that we're hitting right now in our life. Jesus routinely, physically healed people, y'all. Do you think he still does that today? Do you? I, I mean, just think about it. It's okay. We don't have to like get a party going because we all believe. No, think about it. Do you really think Jesus still heals today? Because talk about an oppressive force that's outside of our control that we feel powerless under. We see in the Bible routinely Jesus engaging in areas like that, where the forces of darkness and sin are ravishing people's bodies and he, and he heals them in a moment. He has intervened, y'all, and he still wants to intervene in your life today. More, when we fast, we say, more than food, God, I need you in my marriage. More than food, I need you. More than five guys, I need you in how I raise my kids how I live at work, how I relate to my boss. Listen, I'm just be real. Okay, we're almost done. We're getting close. We're doing good, right? Hangry is a real thing, all right? Like I fasted Tuesday. You should have seen me. I was a jerk, all right? I had a horrible attitude, all right? I was in a foul mood. You need food to be a decent human. And Jesus, but Jesus is trying to tell us something deeper, a deeper need as a human. What you need more than food, listen to me right here. What you need more than food is an intimate, joyful, loving connection with your father in heaven. You need that more than food, bro. An intimate, joyful, loving connection with your Father in heaven. And when you experience that, it's, it's better than food. It's better than food. 
Tuesday, y'all, I was straight up hangry, um, which is a perfect segue to my last point. Um, and this is, this is my last point. I'm about to be done. Um, and this is not the motivation for fasting, but rather a byproduct of fasting, okay? Not the motivation. We deal with the motivation. This is now a byproduct of fasting, which is fascinating. Let me read. Richard Foster says this. More than any other single discipline, fasting reveals the things that control us. This is a wonderful benefit to the true disciple who longs to be transformed into the image of Jesus. If you don't want to be transformed into Jesus, probably not for you. But if you do, fasting's a really good tool. Check it out. We co- still quoting, we cover up what is inside of us with food and other good things. But in fasting, these things, what I, yeah, these things surface, what, what controls us. If pride controls us, it will be revealed almost immediately. Anger, bitterness, jealousy, strife, fear, if they are within us, they will surface during fasting. At first, we will rationalize that our anger is due to our hunger. I'm hangry. Then we begin to know that we are angry because the spirit of anger lives within us. Like we said last week in Romans 7, when Paul says, sin dwells in my members. Remember that? But we can rejoice because we know that healing is available through the power of Christ. Y'all, fasting opens up areas of woundedness, areas of sin, areas of insecurity, and at the same moment gives us the opportunity to bring those things to the foot of the cross. Who has done what's necessary to deal with those things? You see? To remove them. Therefore, fasting, y'all, is the great revealer of things that control us. Because here's the reality about your life. There are good things in your life, stay with me, it's my last point, that are not sin, that are nevertheless sabotaging your relationship with God. Say that again. There are good things, good things in your life that are not sin, that are nevertheless sabotaging your relationship with God. How? Why? Well, because they are exerting unhealthy dominance over your life. And they are effectively sabotaging your ability to be a healthy person, much less a healthy Christian. Listen, let me talk about that. I'll tell you what, what I mean by this point, then we're going to dunk people. Listen right here. Disconnecting your brain and vegging in front of the TV is not a sin. It's not a sin. I, look, I found this awesome documentary this week. I've been, I love it, right? Not a sin. Obsessively researching things online. It's not a sin. It's super fun. You kidding me? What's this reviewer say? You know? Oh, well, this guy, he's got a good review here, right? Okay, let me, here we go. Having a delicious glass of wine. It's not a sin. Drunkenness is. Drunkenness. But, but dude, find me, find the Bible. No, it's not. It's not. Here, here, let's just keep going. Let's blur the lines a little bit more. Your appetite for sex is not a sin. Thank you. I, every time, every time I say it, I'm like waiting for someone to say amen. Okay. Wait, wait, wait. wait. Inside of marriage. Sorry, sorry. All right. Look, y'all, God made you that way. It's not a sin. Social media is, well, I don't know. Yeah, social. 
Uh, save yourself from social. Y'all, watching the news is not a sin. Listen, being highly committed to your job is not a sin. Uh, just like eating food is not a sin. All those things, almost all, except social media, all those things, good things, God-given appetites, things that were made to serve you, to bring life into your desire for leisure, recreation, food, sex, a desire for community, a desire to work hard. All of it's good. God's given it to you. And every single one of them can ruin you. Every single one of them can destroy your life. You tell me an appetite for sex can't destroy. Some of you are dealing with the wake of that destroying your life. The good thing God gave you, destroying you. Why? Because it grew outside of healthy boundaries. Dude, the desire to work hard is given by God to you, man. Some of you are wired to work hard. But if you let your work begin to own you, it will destroy you. Listen, your appetites make wonderful servants. They make horrible masters. Sex. Appetite for sex, wonderful servant to your marriage, horrible master when it begins to rule your life. You guys, dude, your appetite for food, wonderful servant, horrible master if you don't know how to say no to it. If you don't know how to get it within God-given boundaries. Y'all, those are all those things, good things to serve you, but they will destroy you if you let it get out of, out of bounds. It's a remarkable work of the enemy that he takes these gifts of God, good things God's given us, and we, we become obsessed with them and they begin to destroy your life. All those things are wonderful. So I just wanna broaden out my invitation that I made to you, all of you last week. If you're in this room, I'm inviting you right now. Last week, I invited you to fast with me from sunrise to sunset, which turns out on this side of daylight savings is not that bad. <laughs> when daylight savings happen, it's gonna be, it's gonna be stink, all right. But to fast one day from sunrise to sunset from food, or if, if you're just like, forget it, I'm not gonna do it. Okay, fine, fast from social media, all right? Fast from the 24-hour news cycle, please and thank you, all right? Fast from whatever, online research, fast from whatever. And listen, if you're like, if you're, <laughs> whatever the appetite is that you think might be exerting unhealthy dominance on your life, whatever that appetite might be, and you're like, I don't got any appetite, I'm, I'm even, okay, fine, if you're married, just ask your spouse, <laughs> babe. Babe, what appetite do you see in me do you think I'm in danger of being ruined by? I mean, you'll fight all evening, you know? Like, so, so that'll be great. And then if you, if you have the guts to do it, which I, I dare you, dude, I double dog dare you. I dare you. Ask your spouse or ask your friend, what appetites do you see in me that you think are getting out of bounds? And after you fight with them and tell them they don't know what they're talking about and the dust settles, and if you have some shred of humility, then you'll know what to fast from. Okay? So I invite you in. The water's great, almost as warm as the baptismal. Uh, and then my second invite to you, fast some in some form or fashion this week. Pray for this church. Pray for this community. Pray that God would do stuff in our midst, that he would save households. And then join me Sunday nights at 6 p.m. to gather together and pray. So we'll be here tonight, 6 p.m., praying, um, and you're invited to pray with us. So um, we are about to baptize people. So if you are getting baptized, come on up.